And I was just thinking, like, I'd love to be in the meeting at Warner Brothers. I'm like, Chris, how's how's production going on Oppenheimer? We'd love to see like, how you're getting on. And he's like, so I'm currently splitting my own atom he's in New Mexico. The, the, uh, the burn of the goggles <laughs> yeah. around his eyes. Just, he's just, his hair standing on so it. We've done a couple of tests. So uh, you and I had a little fun Monday night. We went to the premiere of The Witcher Blood Origin. It's yeah. at the BFI South Bank. They sort of yeah. transformed it into an old style fantasy medieval tavern. Yes, with uh, a guy playing the lute. Yes, there's a mandolin. Yeah, Was it mandolin? Was it not a lute? I think so. Oh, what is, oh. I mandolin thought it was a mandolin with the, with the bent back of the guitar. I thought that was a lute. Oldie, old music. <laughs> Just old guitar. All of that. And lots of Witcher style potions, like sort of neon blue and green cocktails. And the, and the, the beer steins. With the little corks that go. Oh, yeah. And then you sort right. of have yeah, a little and drink. And bubbling potions, yeah. And, and as someone who adores uh, savory pastry and meats, <laughs> I liked the sausages. I liked the steak and uh, kidney pies. Also, raclette of cheese. The stink. I mean, brave choice Netflix. Because <laughs> yeah, oh, there was wow, the yeah. pong of raclette. You walk uh, in and it hits you in the face. Yeah. Like, there is cheese here, good yeah. sir. <laughs> also, it's a brave thing to have because as soon as you eat it, you're like, I am now the, the, the stinker of cheese. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Speak to me if you dare. You're not the only one. But yeah, they do that thing where they, uh, they scrape the the top layer of melted mm. cheese onto your plate with like potato and meats and you could follow at pop kitchen podcast on instagram if you want to see the highlights of that yes there was that funny moment where we, you know you have about an hour of chit chat yes. before the premiere then afterwards you go back in and the food's still there and i was like the raclette station is still there has that cheese just been, been sitting there after it's already been heated up <laughs> on and off <laughs> they gonna reheat it again no i'm sure all all the cheese um, you know protocols were followed and then they were like this sort of maidens with beer would you like beer and i was like oh yes thank you yes and i was unsure about the level level of fancy that they were buying into is, yeah. is it gonna be like if i whip out my phone they'll be like my my zooms what what, what what sorcery is this i always feel bad asking them a question because they have to stay in character yeah. i'm always like i don't want to ask them too many because i just don't want you to feel like you need to hold this yeah. up but like yeah it was, I had a good time. it was it was what we needed on a uh, you know on a cold uh yeah day. you know if you're listening to this in you know the uk is currently experiencing a massive cold snap cold snap, cold snap. it's a bit of a cold snap cold it? snap it's like the opposite of a heat wave you get a cold snap snap um but it's not much of a snap it's a longer snap it's a bit it's of about a week now. yeah oh yeah and freezing minus I think three it's currently probably minus one outside um, yeah i know we have some listeners in like sweden and keep going that's fine i know we have some listeners in like sweden and, and denmark where it actually gets cold but yeah anyway um that was something to warm yeah side. i had fun with that also it's Christmas time, it as, is. as most of our listeners will be aware. Please and see my jumper. Yes, your jumper is kind of Christmassy. It's kind it's, of like Christmas white noise. Yeah, we talked about... Yes, it is, like static. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talked about uh, films last week that are... Chris, there are some Christmas films, but that there are. are some films that are Christmassy, but not Christmas films. Yes. This is this jumper. Yes. It's Christmassy, but not a Christmas jumper. Also, there are films that are set at Christmas. There's a third category to that. There are films that are set at Christmas but are absolutely got nothing to do with Christmas. Yes. See Iron Man 3. Sweet. Yes. There's a uh, Morven Caller, which the, begins, uh, it's a Lynn Ramsey film, Morven Caller begins with the uh, her looking at her boyfriend who's just committed suicide in yeah. the floor by the flashing lights of the Christmas tree. And I'm like, okay. That's the films of Shane Black, typically, yes, always yes, typically Shane set Black. at Christmas. Uh, Lethal Weapon 1 is, is set in Christmas, but doesn't yes. really have yep. much to do with Christmas. Um, but yeah, I've got a little Christmas go. number on guys as always. If you're just listening and missing out on the visuals, go to YouTube slash Pop Kitchen Podcast. If you're on Spotify, flick the video and on, have a little look. I'm sure next year after the release of Avatar 2, we'll have to be doing this in 3D. Yes. That'll return. <laughs> that will become the default media <laughs> for podcasts. For everything. <laughs> um, no, I bring up Christmas because I just wanted to, I was reminded of something the other day. Um, as it's Christmas, you, you, you mentioned 
a couple of weeks ago about the those books you get you know a hundred a, th- uh, was a thousand and one movies to see before yes. you die and every year it gets reprinted with like, the most lit- recent big film mm-hmm. post on the front right so it reminded me that actually I, uh, I I not only have one of those books, but how I got it was a complicated story. So um, at the beginning of my uh, my girlfriend's relationship, uh, it was our first Christmas. Okay, big one. And and I was you got at permission her house. to tell this story? I guess absolutely. Yeah, it it, it, it does me a disservice. So okay. the, 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 oh, okay. it's an insult to me. And I think it's yeah. time I, I I got this out this story. So I'm at her house and, and I don't know, we're, we're going through a cupboard or a wardrobe or something and she opens it and, and the, that book, 1001 Movies to See Before You Die, is there. Now, yeah. unbeknownst to me, that's my Christmas present for this year uh... right, that she got me. <laughs> I'm being a total tool, which I am, <laughs> saw it, didn't think, oh, maybe she's got this for me for Christmas and she's forgotten to hide it. Just go... Why do you have that? And in a very <laughs> snobbish way, which I thought at the time, recently yeah. graduated film student, I went, why do, you, why do you have that? That's something you give to people who know nothing about film. And, and, and then she was like, cool. So secretly crushed in the inside. Yeah. She then didn't give me that for Christmas because she was too embarrassed. And that then sat at her house for years. Anyway, like, I don't know, six months ago, a year ago, we're at her house again, going through some stuff. And I'm like, why do you have this book on your bookcase? Why do you have a 2016 version of the 1001 movies you see before you die? She's like, well, do you not remember that I had that book? I bought that for you as a nice Christmas present. And oh, you had said, no. and I said, did I? Anyway, I've actually never really read one of those books. And I flicked it open and lo and behold, it's actually very interesting. It's great. And really informative. And particularly because we've had emails recently about mm. how to connect with film history and the wide, wider film debates and just a wider context of how to watch films. Yeah. Those, the, that book is not only... Broken up by um, decade as well. Totally. Really not that, that, that book is not only um, useful, it's almost essential. So yeah. I, I completely take back what I say. Really great brief little bits from critics and author journalists. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I now have that book on my bookcase and I, I do Proudly. flick through it. And like, you know, we're going to be talking about Avatar later and <coughs> I did flick open the Avatar page just to read oh, yeah. through what we're saying. So... Um, I want to say that I, I'm no longer that much of a snob. I, I've learned the error of my ways. Uh, those books are actually quite helpful. And uh, if you haven't had one or you're thinking about getting one or you do have one, good on you because that's the way to go to... And I guarantee there's a load of stuff in the section from the 1940s that is brilliant that you haven't heard of. So go and check it out. So I saw this news story, which I found quite funny, which yeah. is that did you hear that Christopher Nolan in the pre-production production for Oppenheimer has been trying to, or he refuses to do a nuclear bomb CGI. Yes. So he is like <laughs> splitting the atom yeah. and doing nuclear fusion his own way. And I just like, and it's just so Christopher Nolan. Yeah. And it's the perfect little bit of like Nolan-esque buzz before his film. Cause like for Tenet, it was yeah. crashing the plane into the air hangar. Yeah. Dark Knight Rises, like actually like doing that bit with the plane. It's always a plane. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking like, I'd love to be in the meeting at Warner Brothers. I'm like, Chris, how's, how's production going on Oppenheimer? We'd love to see like, how you're getting on. And he's like, so I'm currently splitting my own atom in he's New got Mexico. The, the, uh, the burn of the goggles <laughs> yeah. around his eyes. He's just, he's just, his hair standing on so it. We've done a couple of tests. But we could just, you know, CG. No. no. I would <laughs> like to. No. Do you um, think that someone at Warner Brothers escalates it to the higher level and that the CIA have to come in and say, like, uh, we've heard that you want to actually detonate a uh, nuclear bomb? It's like in it's New Mexico. Possible. It's possible. Um, yeah, it's Chris. The honest, uh, you know, reaction of nuclear fusion is something that I cannot really justify in trying to do digitally. He just yeah. refuses to do anything not practically. But surely, surely 
what are they going to do? Just they're going to do lots of big explosions, not a nuclear one. Yeah, I mean know. that would be crazy. That would be right? that would be insane. Who who? Because what was ever went wrong? What happened? Oh, sorry. You know that film director? Yeah, we kind of gave him a nuclear bomb. <laughs> you <laughs> what? Yeah, and he just got the coordinates wrong. This is Killian Murphy in New Mexico just standing <laughs> next to it, going, "What have we done? Yeah. <laughs> this is my last film." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I did. I know I had heard that story because I saw a clip on TikTok where they'd cut the uh, scene from Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull where he oh, hides yeah, yeah. in the fridge, and it's like extras when Christopher Nolan yells action, and <laughs> yeah. they're like, oh, shit, shit. Uh, madness. So, but what? So he's gonna he, he's trying his hardest he's he can to not quote. do it in CGI. He said, "I think." Recreating the Trinity test without the use of computer graphics was a huge challenge to take on, said Nolan. Andrew Jackson, my visual effects supervisor, I got him on board early on, was looking at how we could do a lot of the visual elements of the film practically from representing quantum dynamics and quantum physics to the Trinity test itself to recreating with my team Los Alamos up on Mesa in New Mexico in extraordinary weather, a lot of which was needed for the film in terms of the very harsh conditions out there. There were huge practical challenges. Yeah. <laughs> you don't like say. Uh, he also says it's one of the most challenging projects I've ever taken on in terms of the scale of it in terms of uh, encountering the breadth of Oppenheimer's stormy story. Uh, there were big logistical challenges, big practical challenges by an extraordinary crew and they really stepped in. It'll be a while before we're finished, but certainly as I watch the results come in and I'm putting the film together, I'm thrilled with what my team has been able to achieve. Right. Very quickly read there by you. I yeah, say, went but, through um, it. If you didn't know, uh, Oppenheimer is Nolan's next film, which is going to be about Oppenheimer, yes. who's father of uh, the Manhattan Project. Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, J. Robert Oppenheimer. Oh, maybe it's J. Robert. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he's, he's one of those old-fashioned people. Like it's Esk one of like those... Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, J.R.R. Tolkien. F. Like, Murray Abraham. You, yes, yeah. Um, uh, okay, yeah, um, I, of course, yeah, this is a new film, and I'm really looking forward to it. Always. Always. Uh, it's, sorry, it's also starring Robert Downey Jr. Mm. And who's... He's got who's the, the best of the best, as always. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Comes out the same opening weekend You've as got, Barbie. Uh, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Rami Malek... Um, Jake and Josh star Josh Peck. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's spherical. <laughs> spherical. I don't know. Okay, I, no, it, not yeah, Jake, okay, and Jake and Josh reference. Well, there we go. Just thought I'd throw that out. Uh, brilliant. Brilliant. So James, they're talking about Christopher Nolan and, you know, ambition and cinema. Big movies. Um, brings us nicely onto Avatar. So obviously Avatar, Way of the Water is opening right now uh, mm -hmm. it is the film of the moment the sequel to avatar 2009 the way and of the water way, no no not the way of the water it's just way of the water so I, I keep saying the way of water it's not a great title okay you know how i struggle with those like house of dragon okay? yes house yeah, of the dragon. yeah I, the dragon. I'm, I'm not i'm not that the definite article always throws me off anyway <laughs> Avatar 2, Way of the Water. <laughs> you just finally... at a bus, being like, another definite article. <laughs> uh, it's finally here. And with its arrival, I thought it was a proper opportunity for you and I to reacquaint ourselves with the first Avatar. And why, you ask? Because, well, Avatar still remains as the biggest selling film of all time, mm -hmm. okay? It has been seen by a lot of people and it's coming back. So... Um, if you haven't seen Avatar for a while, this is an opportunity for you to reacquaint yourself uh, before you go and watch the sequel. If you haven't seen Avatar at all, well, good on you for managing to avoid it uh, yeah. somehow over the past uh, 13 years. It must but have been a protest. If you've, And maybe we can, can fill you in on, on what you've missed, or maybe you really love the film and you've always wanted to know what we think about it. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to reacquaint ourselves. Mm. So James... I'm going to cast you back to the halcyon days. Well, not halcyon days, actually. Cast you back to the dizzying past of 2009, which is a very specific time ago because 13 years is simultaneously... 
not that long ago, but also a long time ago. And in the landscape of cinema feels like a really well, long time ago, In right? that time, franchises have been born, died, been rebooted and died again. We've had two different Spider-Men and a film in which those two Spider-Men come together <laughs> and are in something in that time, okay? <laughs> so like 2009 was a long time ago. Let me just, let me give you a couple of things. Three Batman. Th- uh, yes, we, we have had three Batman yeah. in that time. Very good. Yeah. Um, here are a couple of things that happened in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Russia shut off all the gas supply to Europe because of something that happened in Ukraine. Happened in January 2009. Wow. Uh, the Captain Phillips hijacking happened. Oh, like the actual, the actual wow. Captain Phillips yeah. hijacking. So we've since had our own movie with Tom <laughs> Hanks. Yep. Um, that film is now on. Uh, the swine flu pandemic of oh 2009. Uh, small change compared to what we know now. Nothing like coughing in the corner of a classroom <laughs> at school. And everyone going, this, he's got a swine flu. I'm going to next to him. Uh, Michael Jackson died. Mm. Um, Sully, hit hero on the Hudson, landed the plane on the Hudson. And we've also had a Tom Hanks movie. And we've also that. had a Tom Hanks movie about that, yeah. <laughs> Please give me another um, one where Tom Hanks has been the star. That is some of the things on 2009. And and, and also, uh, just to really, really put this thing in context, context, the official song of this film was sung by none other than Leona Lewis. Uh, what? X Factor, X Factor winner, I want to say, of 2007. For everyone, um, for everyone non- uh, UK yeah, listeners. Yeah, for our non-UK listeners. We're uh, the X Factor, but I don't think it's done much outside much of that. Since. I think she's been into acting now. Okay. Um, but yes. Leona uh, Lewis. I know, Leona Lewis. And I know, when I, when I, when I heard it, when, I, when we rewatched it, I was like, Jesus, wow, Leona Lewis. So yes, James and I have gone back and we've rewatched Avatar. We've refreshed our memories and mm. we're going to go through and give it to you. So a little bit of facts about Avatar before we begin. Did you know that work on Avatar began in 1994, the mm. early 90s? James Cameron- The fresh off the we've ba- been alive. That's a scary thought, isn't yeah. it? Wow. Uh, James Cameron, fresh off the back of Terminator 2, great film, of course, as we mm. know, and pioneering CGI in that, um, wanted to create this. Uh, he wrote an 80-page treatment for what would become Avatar, and it drew, insp- drew inspiration from, as he said, every single science fiction book he had read, and in addition to the adventure novels of people like Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote Tarzan, and also John Carter, which is funny because John Carter of Mars, which would then be made into a film just called John Carter, which would massively bomb, but clearly yeah. influenced by Avatar and the success mm-hmm. of that. Um, there's a 1996 article I found um, in the Tampa Tribune, I believe. Let me just open this. Yeah, a 1996 article from the Tampa Bay Times, which says, synthetic actors to star in Avatar... Director James Cameron is planning a movie with synthetic actors. Avatar is expected to include at least six photorealistic CGI actors in leading roles. Actors who appear to be real but do not exist in the physical world. Uh, Digital Domain, the special effects house in which Cameron is a partner, is staffing up for the huge effort, which is... is Can I finish the sentence? Which is expected to go into production next summer following the completion of the director's current $100 million project, Titanic. Avatar's budget will probably be in the same range. James? I was just going to say, so you talk about like digital actors it's almost like not even referencing motion capture yes, yet they it's do. like a purely digital yes. performance the, the like, way they yeah. conceive of such a thing yeah. um uh while computer computer generated creatures have been used effectively in films including jurassic park jumanji and Dragonheart. anyone uh filmmakers using ca- computer animation have yet to put anything remotely human on the big screen mm. cameron is determined to do so um also on this film news page from that from that year from that day is Michael York and Robert Wagner have joined Mike Myers and Elizabeth Hurley in the live action, uh, in the action adventure comedy, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, I quite like to see that little slice of what yeah. else was there, yeah. So that was, uh, so that was, news about it was then. 
Then obviously James Cameron goes and makes Titanic, huge success, then becomes the biggest film of all time. Yeah. Big, big win at the Oscars and he's on top of the world. But, uh, and then, sorry, Avatar is meant to be the film that he makes after that uh, to be released in about 1999. But of course, James Cameron, looking ahead, realizes that the technology is not right for it. So he sits on it, sits on it and works patiently. So apparently on, in 2005, he started to develop the language of the Navi. Uh, mm-hmm. And in 2006, the script development began and he started to build the universe. Now, Avatar has apparently had an official budget in 2009 mm-hmm. of, well, when it was made, of $237 million. Which for the time is, is massive. Even I know, now, even now it's massive. Huge, but, but back then it's yeah. huge. Um, but this does not include the estimated $150 million used for marketing. Right, right? yeah. Um, he quickly used, incorporated Weta Digital, which yeah. is the uh, New Zealand Wellington-based visual effects company. Probably the biggest name in special visual effects. Yeah, so. I mean, the pioneers of visual effects in, in modern cinema, Lord of the Rings, um, uh, King Kong, etc., etc. Yeah. And yes, Cameron, James Cameron and with Weta really pioneered motion capture, which is a, is a phrase we're so used to now, but before Avatar, we really weren't. Well, I would say well, Smeagol yes. and Lord of the Rings kind of beat them to it but we, we can but, get but I, no, that, but I but think yes. that in ter- entering common parlance with uh, your average film going knowing what motion capture yes. means yeah. right which is obviously where uh, you know like you have these specially designed cameras which uh, and it says here Cameron actually pioneered a specially designed camera built into a six inch boom that allowed the facial expressions of the actors to be captured and digitally recorded for the animators to use later which we know of and if you've ever seen a BTS, you'll often see an actor with what looks like a GoPro in front of their face with a bunch of dots, yes. which are then mapped digitally. So every movement is essentially keyframed into a digital and, you know, performance. We're very familiar with motion capture now, particularly with things like the Planet of the Apes films and um, Andy Serkis's work. A lot um, of Marvel stuff. That a happens. lot of Marvel stuff. So it's, it, it, is it has now well. become uh, a... a, a, a a part of the arsenal of Gaming filmmaking. Gaming as well, performance, capture performance. Absolutely. It's, it's part of the arsenal of filmmaking in the same way that CGI became. Things like Jungle Book as well, day. Lion King, Animals. Yeah, sorry, endless. Anyway, okay, so during its theatrical run, the film was released, by the way, in December 2009, mm-hmm. uh, first in London and then in the United States. During its theatrical run, the film broke several box office records and became the highest grossing film at the time, as well as in the Canada, as well as in the United States and Canada, surpassing Cameron's Titanic, which had held those records for 12 years. So he beat, beat himself. Good, yeah. good on you. What a, what, a, what, a, what a win-win. He's doing all right. Um, Avatar remained the highest grossing film in the world for nearly a decade until it was overtaken by Avengers Endgame in 2019. But... A Chinese re-release of Avatar led to the film retaking the worldwide top spot in March 2021, where it has been ever since. Adjusted for inflation, this is always the key thing people forget Mm. about a great um, box office smash. Adjusted for inflation, Avatar is the second highest grossing movie of all time after Gone with the Wind. Yeah, this is the 1939 Gone with the Wind. um, Actually. But isn't that amazing that still Gone with the Wind was just... I would have loved to have just been a fly on the wall. 1939, how much that film just sort of took over and, and without film podcasts yes. and like yeah. social media to permeate in that way. Hey, it's Clark Gable here. We just dropped this new Welcome film. Welcome back to uh, really this new film <laughs> coming out in 1939. Gone with the Wind is really? taking away storming through audiences. They are yeah, I'm here with the incorporated into cinemas and the 2010s, especially the early 2010s can be typified yeah. by the cinema experience being dominated by 3D. And if you grew up in that time like you and I did, James, we're used to hearing Mark Kermode really, really like uh, hold 3D to account as something that was being marketed as sort of enhancing the cinema experience, mm. but for, he would point out how it absolutely wasn't. 30, was it 30% li- loss? It's often a more expensive ticket. Yeah. It was harder to find 2D screenings. You go on your website and you would yeah. see film 3D, yeah. film 2D, and like you'd often have fewer options to see in yeah. 2D because they were incentivized to sell you the yeah. 3D ticket because you had to pay £1.50 for the glasses, whatever. Yeah, and also it was one thing to see Avatar, which was like... It, 
very, very intent, intensive, Shot in intention, 3D. Yeah. intentionally designed to be like that. Whereas other films would just do like the, every so often there'll be uh, something flying towards yeah. you. And do you know what? When I recently, when I rewatched the first Guardians of the Galaxy, so that's 2014, yeah. there are a couple of moments in that. I'm like, that was, was done for deliberately 3D. for 3D to come towards the screen. If you don't know, in order to actually, when you shoot a film in 3D properly, you use a camera that has two different lenses which are bounced on a periscope. So you're actually shooting it twice on two different sensors which are then digitally matched to like the same, roughly the same framing as the eyes on your face. Mm. And that's what creates good 3D. Like gravity, which I think is another example mm. of good 3D, was shot like that. If you don't do that, you're essentially taking your film which you shot with one lens and standard, doubling it and just making it slightly out of sync like you would your eyes yeah. and then rematching it with glasses. So it's, it is a completely different technical That's process. Right. So yeah. Um, when was the last time you saw a film in 3D, by the way? Because I, I, I used to always avoid it. I never liked it, but I remember going to see Blade Runner 2049 in 2017 oh, wow. and the only screening I could get was 3D and did it make a difference? I mean, it, it didn't help it. It didn't make the film any better, no. For the life of me, I actually can't remember the last one was. It, I, it could could well have been a Marvel project at the time that mm. was still getting 3D, but I don't, I can't tell you which one. I saw Prometheus in the IMAX as well with uh, 3D right. glasses. Yeah. The film. No, I don't remember. I'm quite glad to say I don't really remember. Okay, so let's just... Obviously, Game to Avatar, most people know this film, of course, but just to recap for everyone, it is set on the, the, uh, the I think it's a moon, isn't it? Of moon Pandora. Of the more, the, no, it's not Jupiter. It's yeah, in, it no, it's not, that's not Jupiter. No, it's different, different it looks like Jupiter. Oh. But it, it's just that, well, first of all, that's blue, that planet, James, and Jupiter is famously red. Oh, I thought it was, no, no, no. No, it's not. Pandora it's, is a moon of Jupiter, is it not? No, it's it's in the Alpha Centauri system, it says. Oh, okay, here. forget it then. <laughs> I thought it was really nearby. <laughs> Set in the mid-2022nd uh, century, it stars uh, Sam Worthington, uh, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver, Stephen Lang. Sam Worthington plays uh, Jake Sully, who is a marine, former Marine who is um, who, who can no longer use his legs and is sent out on this mission in replacement of his twin brother, who was a scientist who got killed. <laughs> To be part of a very expensive avatar project, very very expensive avatar project to basically become uh, inhabit the body of a genetically uh, enhanced uh, and he can only do of, it. A, a genetically enhanced version of the the native people of Pandora, the indigenous people of Pandora, the Navi, uh, in, in a hope to build relations and because because humans are on this planet to mine it for unobtainium. Which when I first saw this, I was like, that's a joke name, right? And it well, is in science, it is a joke name. But they say this with a complete straight face. Well, it was a working title for the element. And then they just left and then it they in. just like let's just leave it. Yeah. So unobtaining this mineral that apparently can you know solve everything. Sells for twenty two million dollars yeah. a kilo. That's G the cheddar. Giovanni, Giovanni Ribisi yeah. uh, being the, 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 the corporate sleaze. <laughs> corporate yeah, sleaze, I know. Yeah. Um, I guess. Um, I love what's his name? Talks. Sam Rockwell was busy that day. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> literally. Anyway, uh, obviously, so he's working for the science program, but then Stephen Lang, who's the head of security, uh, as Quadrich says, uh, you know, uh, he's he's one cigar away from being a cigar chomping. <laughs> he's uh, like a Squinty, hardened, scratched, coffee over. sipping. You know, you got thousand yards stare. Soft. Yeah, yeah. So I'll get you. You uh, back. And says to him, "Look, you need to give me some intel on, on what's happening on well, this." Well, he's planet. sort of working for Sigourney Weaver, but but, he's but, 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 but because he's a former Marine, Stephen Lang says, "You know, do this for me, and I'll get I'll get you your legs back." Yeah. And he says, "Okay, cool." And off he goes on this adventure where he encounters the Navi, and you know, it's Pocahontas, it's Dances <laughs> with Wolves, it is all of that stuff, and Q. Uh, Culture conflicts, cue economic and environmental sort of themes, uh, themes and themes of capitalism, Connecting themes of col nature. colonialism, themes of 
uh, American military American American military imperialism. Your understanding that nature seems to operate on a much higher, more complex yes. sphere that we're not currently in touch with because of the technology that we have. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah, the pursuit of profit. Really, sort of ba- big themes you big, have seen in big many many science big fiction films. Films. Like I said, James Cameron said he had drawn inspiration from every single science fiction book he'd ever read, yeah. and I think it shows. Um, <laughs> but look, it's been. 13 years since mm. Avatar came out. And um, I've, I saw it in 2014 for the first time at home. Yeah. And I've now watched it again for the second time mm-hmm. in 2022. You saw it at the cinema yep. in 2009. Mm-hmm. And you said you've watched it once more since then? Yeah, saw it in cinema in 2009. And then I would have rewatched it uh, within two years, either at home on Sky. Yeah, I think probably just like at home on okay. TV. Yeah. So. You and I have both rewatched it yeah. ahead of the release of the sequel. James, mm. Avatar 2009, what do you make of it now? I think I want to throw back to a conversation you and I had probably six months ago when the first trailer dropped for Avatar 2. And I think like, you know, we commented on the fact that it kind of looked like a screensaver. Yes, it's very pretty. But I think we were almost like re-remembering that Avatar existed. And I think I was like, what is the Avatar effect? What is it mm. about that film that did so well? I do kind of understand what did so well, why it did so well. And, you know, we put a clip out and I think a lot of comments were quite negative about Avatar. And I think if I was to sort of generalize everyone's opinion, I think Avatar gets quite a hard rap because Mm. it is the biggest film of all time. And we talked about the themes of it being quite broad strokes, Mm. fairly on the nose. It's nothing we haven't. It's a lot of things we've seen before. And watching it this time, it has a plot and narrative. Um, And the fact that, you know, Jake Sully really is a blank vessel for... (laughs) anyone to sort of put themselves on. He's like this, the the video game character you haven't, you know, started customizing yet. Which is Shaved exactly, head, which is exactly what I think of Sam Worthington as an actor as yes, well. Okay. Yeah, he really is. No disrespect. But. And look, I, what my main overriding thought is, it, it's not as bad as I thought, I, I, as I thought going back into it. Like being quite honest, I didn't think this is, this is really awful. I think what still you cannot take away from it is that the facial capture, digital, mm performances are still fantastic. There's a couple of moments where I thought Sigourney Weaver looked a little bit rubbery, mm. but like I will not take away from the fact that seeing this in cinemas, which I obviously didn't do this time, would no doubt have still been an amazing mm. thing to watch. It showed you something you hadn't really seen before visually. And I think it's visual effects, maybe 80% of the time I watched it still hold up. And I cannot say that for almost all films that would have come out in 2009. So for that, yeah. I do credit it. And I've no doubt Avatar Way of the Water is gonna do the exact same. That being said, Plot-wise and dialogue, I think since has progressed. I was a little bit. I, 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 I think. I think it was already. I think it was already. You, kind you could of already get. You know, it, getting good dialogue and getting good script writing has been sure. around for 50, uh, sure. We've had that. past fifty years. Yes. Um, I was actually. I forgot how much it relies on voiceover and the Jake Sully vlogs, yeah. the sort of scientific research. And he's like, "What? Very, very contrived reasons? Why, why am I doing this?" It's yeah. like, and he's like, "It's important. It's part of the documenting process." Because we need to tell the audience what's going what, on. I need to tell the audience exactly how I'm feeling and what I should be thinking. Um, I think there are a couple of scenes which I think are good scenes. I think there's a cool scene when he gets into the avatar for the very first time and he realizes he's using his legs. Like that's really cool. And he goes and he runs outside and he squidges his toes in the soil and he's like genuinely elated and laughing. I think that's a really great scene. And I think the the destruction of Home Tree is something that even watching now, I was like, God, that really sucks. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I really liked that place. Um, I still think it's it's a long and slightly indulgent film, but um, I don't. I didn't dislike it nearly as much as I thought when you and I said we were going to rewatch it. Do you know what? I, 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 I think it? I had a very similar experience because um, 
I, when I went to rewatch now, I was watching it very much in the context of what blockbusters are now. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I think in that comparison, in that context, I think actually Avatar holds up relatively well. First of all, in terms of the visual effects, the visual effects that we've seen in 2009 with this film compared to the visual effects we've seen this year in, let's just say, Marvel films, yeah. hold up very well. Obviously, VFX this year has been under a massive amount of scrutiny because there's been all these stories about how uh, crunch. Uh, there's been a massive crunch on uh, visual effects artists and they are being overworked, underpaid. There are more and more projects with not yeah. an expanding workforce that all done in. Look at the th- articles and the, the fan reactions that come out all the time to projects like She-Hulk or um, Sonic the Hedgehog, just these yeah. sort of uh, cats, these reactions to, oh my God, what, ugh, what, what is happening with these yeah. movies and, and, and the rejection of it. Compared to what was happening 13 years ago with what's an avatar, I thought it held up very, very well. Yeah. I re- like you said, I think apart from maybe one or two moments, I thought this is really, really solid. Mm. Um, I think the thing, well, <laughs> I, I, when you mentioned about the video game stuff, I, yeah. I think Avatar is the best video game adaptation. That's not a video that's game not a video adaptation. Yeah. And I mean that in that, it's funny that it's called Avatar because like you said, Jake avatar. Sully, Sam Worthington is the avatar for the audience and he, is a complete really blank, blank slate. slate. And, it, and that, is a, that is a problem cinematically because he's a complete uh, reactive blank presence, which means I have nothing to hook me in and work with. So the, the thing with him getting his legs back is probably the only emotional element yeah. that can really bring you in. He oh. thinks and feels in all the ways you could imagine him thinking and feeling. Yes. There's nothing he does that really takes you by surprise from a character perspective. But but the, the thing about it being a video game also extends to like, there are certain moments that feel like elaborate cutscenes in a, in a cinema. Yeah, and sure. the, specifically the scene where he first meets Natiri, who's uh, uh, Zoe Saldana's character. And she sort of picks him up and says, hey, come with me. And, she, and, you, and he sort of goes, okay. And I can imagine there was almost like a bit that on the screen that says, like tap X now, to tap X to run. <laughs> yeah. And he walks over a branch and there's a chasm on either side. He sort of goes, whoa, whoa. And the camera sort of like pans either side to show you how far yeah. off. And I'm like, I've seen this in a, in a video game, right? Yeah. Um, so, that, so that's all there. And everything upgrades. Like he starts with the horse and then he learns how to fly. Yes, the, exactly. The, and it's like, today creeps, your mission is linking with a thick right? Yeah. Um, Sahelu. So yeah, I mean, let's get all the, the, the negative stuff out of the way, like you said before. So yeah, it, it's still too long. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's just the biggest thing working against it is, is its runtime. Uh, still got an absolute uh, banter black hole, charisma vacuum at the heart of it, which is uh, Jake Sully. Jake Sully. Jake Sully. Um, the, uh, the dialogue is so instructional, yeah. expositional, over-directed. Sigourney Weaver's dialogue is a lot of uh, that. It's, it's, hi, we're doing this, we're doing this because we're here, and I'm here, and I've been doing this for this long, and you're here to do this, and you want to do that, which is, <laughs> yeah, it, it, a complete lack of nuance that really gives the audience nothing to do. Yes. It gives you nothing to engage with because it, it doesn't allow you to make connections between what people are saying. It's it, no it's, where I go, hang it's on. It's the equivalent of a uh-huh. training video. Yeah. I'm watching it like, so, ah, hi, well, and you know, I've been to the Avatar ride in Florida. Oh, right, for you, yeah. Which I enjoyed, but it made me feel quite sick. But, um, uh, which again is like, hi, welcome to the ride. Welcome to Pandora. You're going to ride an Ikron. I was like, was this written by James Cameron as well? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, so all of that's there. However, why will say did stand out watching it now, watching it in the context of 13 years later, is I did come away with actually a little bit of respect for this film because this is obviously one of those, uh, it's a film that's all about ambition and vision and spectacle. And compared to the very visual CGI-led blockbusters that we see currently, I was really appreciated or respected the complete clarity of its vision okay yeah. and that extends to the dialogue now that dialogue is absolutely expositional instructional and dull but what it also is that film has an answer for everything 
It's dialogue. It's a, why are we doing this? Well, because we got this. And why do we want to do this? Oh, we want to do this. And, and we're going over there because of this. And um, I never felt for any moment during the film that it didn't know where it was going. To waste your time. I mean, it, it is a long time, to, but I mean, the it, it, it is a long purpose. Long, the scene, it's very pacey. Yeah. And it, it begins, it's like, hi, we're here. We're doing this. And it, it is a mission. So in a way, the, the only thing about it is that it's overtold. I can mm. really feel James Cameron being like, this is what we're doing this. And he, he's basically running you through the minutiae of everything in a way that you think, James, this is great. You can step back a bit and let me you know, come on board now. Mm. But um, the, I, I just feel like there have been, with big, big budget films recently, you, you get this wearying sense of where, where am I? What, what is all this for? And actually, I, ne- I always thought this film knows exactly where it's going. It's going to give me a complete story. You know, take Dune as an example, right? Because I think, what other film have I seen that's really tried to build a new world and build a mm. new aesthetic? And Dune did that very well. Completely new aesthetic, completely new look for science fiction. But my biggest problem with Dune was that it didn't complete a story. Mm. I know it's part one, but like it, it just obeyed like a scientific law of storytelling, which is- It's hard to review it. You didn't, opinion, yeah, it's like, didn't. it's like a video game where the last mission is downloadable content. It just right, wasn't, yeah. wasn't. And, but Avatar, I knew was going to give me a whole story the whole way through and it committed to give me to it. It gave me a full arc, right? If there was never another Avatar sequel, it's fine because you had a complete story there. Um, I think that I think Zoe Saldana is great yeah. I mean looks great compared because obviously she's working against that absolute blank slate that is Jake Sully um, and uh, and like I said I don't think it's all Sam Worthington's fault he's, she's just working with what he's given yeah. but so Zoe Saldana is really you can really see her expressions in them that's when I was like oh this, this technology is fantastic it because it's works. really capturing the, the movement in her face and yeah, I really respected that I'm being shown a, a, a vision of a world that is relatively original and an aesthetic that is relatively original. This, you know, saturated blues, these soaring vistas and- um, It knows how to like bring, like make a color contrast between totally, when you plug totally. into the matrix and when you're like in that sterile green yeah. gray technology lab. It's like James Cameron said, I'm going to build a new world. And I'm like, well, you, well, you have, well done. Yeah. It might be intellectually a little bit dumbed down sadly but i fully respect the fact that you've committed committed to building a world with a language and everything and on a big screen in 2009 i mean look there have been some comments online that say you know it was just after the economic crash this is just complete escapism mm. uh and, and and pure cinema um so so great for that i um well i just on that i was i definitely noticed i think i was impressed by how dedicated it was in the first half especially to world building world building world building not just in the dialogue which is a little bit heavy-handed a little bit on the nose but everything is like you got to do this even the the character who um who is the scientist who's been training and he's kind of cynical of jake because he's just jumping into it and jake's getting more success connected to the rv and he's like even though he's still explaining stuff i'm like all of this is establishing what why you're doing it and even the wide shots are like showing you context like oh look there is like this mass militarization and this like yeah. expectation they're gonna go in and i kind of was like yeah like every part of your energy is put towards building the world which i can tell yeah you've really worked on for a long time it, it never came across like it's just been thought up immediately yeah that's I be- it i believe that james cameron has got way more to write about mm. this whether or not i'm interested in it is a question like yeah you went for considering it considering that avatar was not not a pre-existing ip the, the biggest trap this thing uh it would have fallen into is it being too obscure to people yeah and people would have gone i just don't get this if anything, it's like overcorrected and it's made yeah. it so broad yeah. and accessible that everyone can get on board. I mean, it worked in its favor because it became the biggest selling film of yeah, all yeah. time. So hats off to it. And, st- and structurally, it, uh, it mirrored Titanic because you had an hour and a half, bang, destruction of home tree, iceberg hits, yeah. hour and a half to the end, yeah, give or take. It's yeah, like, like yeah. two halves of the film. Um, 
Uh, yeah, so, I mean, um, there's a couple of nice touches, like Sigourney Weaver, he didn't, he was nervous about casting her because he thought she was in Aliens, you know, obviously, which he made, and sure. had, like, her attachment to that, but he did put her in. And actually, he was thinking about casting Michael Bain, who played Hicks uh, in Aliens, uh, okay, and, yeah. and John Connor, not John Connor, sorry, Kyle Reese in Terminator, as... Quadrich, but he was like, "That's just too much aliens in there right now." Is I'm not making, I'm not yeah, making a tribute video to my previous yeah. work. I think so. Stephen Lang's really good Fantastic. as well. Like, really menacing. Oh, great! You're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, he needs to. He brings the the requisite amount of like grit and 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 uh, groundedness. They are very hard to kill. I was like JFK. Yeah, you, you do sound <laughs> like JFK. He's not southern either. No. He's just a hard boiled. No, he's not even southern. What am I doing? You got three months till the dozers get in. Is he Matthew McConaughey? No, now? I don't know. I'm, I'm wandering all over, but there's something there. Um, uh, I like the battle scenes at the end. I, I, I want to give a shout there's, out there's to. One, there's one element that, that is a bit poorly directed. Has dated. There's a when they're like we're shutting the program down and everything. Not only do they use slow motion, but they desaturate the frame, so it seems really melancholy. And I was like, this yeah, reminds right. me of like emo videos on YouTube <laughs> yeah. in, in 2009. Deep sepia. I'll also give a uh, shout out to a scene where watching this now, my heart was going, and that's when like you know classic hero's journey stuff. He's given this huge obstacle to prove that he's a man and that he's one of the people. Where he has to go and choose his. Is Ikron. it Ikrit? Ikrit? Ikron. Ikron. And uh, there's this moment when he realizes that like he has to go and like mount one, essentially like yeah. over overpower it. And yet, and then she's like, "How will I know which one chooses me?" And she's like, "Because it will try to kill you." And he's like, "Outstanding." <laughs> and he walks yeah. through. And it like does Matrix, this moment which it? I never noticed before, where um, Natiri is walking in front of him, and it goes point of view perspective when Atiri actually looks right down the barrel of the lens yeah. and Jake is there and you're actually walking like POV as if you're right behind Jake with these yeah. huge dragons and I was like god that's a I actually noticed that's like a another first person also another video game another very video game thing and I like how again immersive and I can't imagine you know if well, I remember watching that in 3D in the cinema would have also been very cool mm. and then that moment when he makes the bond and he's got to like immediately fly I'm like yeah. that that scene works and it's immersive and it does get you. And I was like, oh yeah, that was, that was work. That good, my heart's that, beating. That's what the ride in Florida is. Right. You're, you're flying <laughs> okay. an Ikron. No, but can I just, you know, yeah. you go into a room which like, it's not like a roller coaster. It's like a row of like bikes. And you go on the bikes, you put these goggles on and they're like, and we're now linking to you to your avatar. So you then you have this very immersive screen and then the thing moves. And it's obviously, even though you know you're in a room and you're wearing goggles, you know, and you're, but because it's got the first person perspective and you're going down and obviously the machine manipulates yeah, that, yeah. it really feels, and it was great. I, I just felt incredibly sick afterwards. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I did it twice. Um, anyway, so so that's what I would say. I would say, if people said, oh, what do you think of Avatar? I think I think it's actually perfectly solid and perfectly enjoyable with the, with the caveat that it's just too long. If it was, ju if it just shaved 20 minutes, off even half an hour i think i think that would have been like oh that's a perfectly solid time i didn't have a bad time it's just no. kind of like, it's fine it's fine it gets a bad rap but you know what um if you're going to be the biggest film of all time you need to be quite accessible but i you know i do like endgame as well does that deserve a better higher spot i don't know mm, well you know avatar 2 is i think 25 minutes longer than avatar 1 mm. i think that's 314 mm. so he's not gone no he doesn't do small does not do small and I mean, like, we sort of covered it, but how are you feeling going into Avatar Way of the Water if you are going to see it? Well, it's interesting because you and I, when we went to The Witcher, we were having a conversation with Ali Plum, yes. who is Radio 1's film critic for our international listeners, Radio 1, obviously, BBC Radio 1, yeah. uh, uh, main radio station, and Ali Plum is a, is a film critic who, who works on there. And we just sort of, like, bumped into him, sort of yeah, asking him what he'd been doing recently, and he was saying, like, you know, what yeah, his coverage of Avatar. Avatar. And we were talking about it, and he said... 
you know, we were talking about where it sits in the cultural landscape now because it's yeah. been 13 years. And he said, well, I have a, a nephew, I think he said, who who has no idea, just doesn't get it. And because it's not a, it's not a comic book, it's not a video game, it's, mm. not, it's just one film and a ride at Florida. It, and there's nothing else of Avatar in the cultural landscape for the past 13 years. Yeah. And he realized that his nephew was 12. And he was like, of course, this person it was born after this film came out. So... So what does Avatar mean to all these people other than a memory mm. of this big, big film they saw? So, I mean, for me now going into it, I, I, I came not, out for us perfect age, to be honest. Right, exactly. So I'm, uh, go, I'm glad I rewatched it. I, I am more interested now in seeing the sequel, but I do think it's almost like starting again. Yeah. You have to, you have to prove yourself again. We're, it's a completely different world now. It's the world that you created in a way, Avatar, because you had such a profound effect on, on yeah. the way massive big box blockbuster films are made how do i feel about it i again the runtime as with any film is is a massive obstacle that's i've said this so many times you open yourself up to so much criticism but, but, when you do that but also isn't it funny that like obviously avengers endgame was like three hours long mm. but that was bringing so much like you were already invested because was it was like the it, it was the season I finale no problems with that being exactly, three hours because it was I the was season running. finale you were like they got so much to cram in but to be asked i was excited that it was long to, to fly back to a world you haven't been to for 13 years and be like oh uh, i need you to spend three and a half hours and i'm like okay with jake Sully, not the most interesting person okay yeah. um yeah. I, I think I'm actually more exhausted. I don't know if this is a really reductive point by the fact that I know there are four more of these who are going to be an equal length. It's actually that thought that yeah. this isn't like Dune part two. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no this yeah. is, I want you to now really reel exercise, in. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking like, God, I really am not in the mood for, like, I, as you just said, it's your point. I hope it is a film in its own right. I yeah. don't want it to be like, here's part one of yeah. the next four. Because we... Uh, live in a very competitive media landscape. Yeah. And the reason we did that episode many months ago about why greatest 90 minute films is because I, I uh, so I was talking to a friend recently about the BFI top 10 and, and, and we we're talking about it. We talked about Whiplash actually. And I was, one thing I like about Whiplash was that that's a film that is a short film mm. that knows that its audience might have somewhere else to be. Yeah. It's a debut film that goes, we don't What's have time whiplash? to waste. Yeah, exactly. Just like, you know, and I, and uh, that's the beauty of short films. They're like, we understand that people might have somewhere else to be and we can tell this story tightly and concisely. When it gets to three hours, 15, I'm like, okay, I guess you're just banking on the fact that I'm, I'm so in love with this product yeah. that I'm just going to give away my time. You and I will see it because we do, we, we love do a film, film podcast. And we, and we do a film podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> now we've done this episode. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm and like committing I, that. It's, it's, a, it's a chore. It's a chore. I feel like it's a chore. And committing that much time at the moment is like a four hour commitment of getting there, doing the ads, doing the film, coming out. Maybe I should do an it's, after it's start and they, the they cut the ads out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's going to be like good 40 minutes of adverts before that because the, every ad, advertiser oh. is going to be like, that's Avatar. the film, that's the only where, film that's where, out. Where, how long is the cutoff before you need an interval? Because Tarantino treated us to one for Hateful Eight, which was a long film. That was 245, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, but Something then like that. Black Panther will kind of forever is 245. Yeah, I know. Do you, do you think there should be just like a courtesy, go take a pee? Did you, when they showed The Irishman in cinema, did they have an interval there? I didn't see it in cinema, so I can't uh, comment. Yeah, me neither. Um, I think that... <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, but that, that was the only thing Ali Plum said. He said it, that it is an interesting Christmas because a bit like, I suppose, when The Force Awakens came out, it's just Avatar. Yeah, there's you no other film coming out. No film's bothering to compete with. No, them. you might have a rom com or like something. Literally the opposite. Oh, can you please tell no, me? No. What? Have Have you seen the some of the initial review headlines? Some of them actually really made me laugh. Oh, because because oh, by the way, yeah, on Avatar two, 
Reviews are really mixed. I saw Empire gave it five stars. Oh, I, I, do you know what? I knew that with my eyes closed. And I just know that. Empire always would give that film I've five seen stars. two and three stars. <laughs> Go on. Okay. Uh, the Telegraph said, Avatar 2 is finally here, and it's like being waterboarded with turquoise cement. <laughs> Uh, the Guardian said, Avatar, The Way of Water, a soggy, twee, trillion-dollar screensaver. <laughs> I did say it looked like a screensaver in the trailer. Not like the kind yeah, of thing yeah, that's yeah. playing when you go to the dentist. Oh, yeah, yeah, we said that. Uh, and the Financial Times said, uh, Avatar, The Way of the Water, a sequel drowning in epic sincerity. So very mixed reviews at the moment. TBCB, you're right. The, the knowledge that... Because they they filmed... Avatar 3 simultaneously with some of Avatar 2. Uh, is it no, two, no, no, they, oh. they overlapped the filming. So they were right. filming Avatar 2 and they then began at filming Avatar 3 in two different locations. I thought it was 2, 3, 4. They filmed together. And no, they five done, is they, not they, they, I think they're still working on 4. Come 4 on. and 5 are only contingent on the, on the two on, success. On the 2 and 3 make being a massive success. So they were filming 2 somewhere and they started filming 3 in Wellington. At the same time. I, I Is it going to be... Is the top spot in 10 years going to be Avatars 2, 3, 4? Or like, is it just going to be that? Is that it? I don't know. I don't know. Who we knows? will see. Maybe in 10 years' time, we'll be like... In the same way... Oh, we're I'm so excited about no, Avatar no, no, 5. No, no, can't yeah, wait. So, you know, number three is coming out 24, then we've got 26 and 28. But like, in the same way that 10 years ago, 13 years ago with Avatar, we were like, well, that really changed things. Maybe we'll go, wow, when Avatar came back, that really changed things again and everything had to up its game. And it, it was no longer Marvel, Marvel, Marvel. It was like, wow, you've got to start- doing this podcast in space <laughs> <laughs> on Pandora. <laughs> anyway, guys, people. Hopefully there's a little preview for you. That's, that's a little recap of Avatar from 2009. What do you think of Avatar? Do you well, agree with us? I'll tell you what you think of Avatar, Avatar uh, Way uh, of the uh, Water, uh, by yeah, the time. I'm, Sorry, yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. feel free. Go through. Uh, but I was also going to say yes, and also- now you you would have gone to see the sequel. Let us know what you think at hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. We will be doing a review of it. Whether or not James and I are able to see it at the same time or it's review long. it at the same time yeah. it is difficult because as we discussed, it's very long. We're also at that complete bottleneck of the yes. year before Christmas where there is just so much on and so much happening. Please forgive us, but we'll see. Um, we will cover it on the show. It will no absolutely doubt. be covered and we will be, we would really look forward to hearing your thoughts and opinions on it. Again, as you know, hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. But that was our recap of Avatar. So before cinemas get completely overrun with Avatar, you've been able to see one other film before that. Ruben Ostlund's Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, the Palm d'Or winner for this year. Yeah, right? won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Uh, Ruben Ostlund's a filmmaker I'll admit, I'm not very familiar with. Mm. Uh, I know that his film from 2017, The Square, yes. also won yes. the Palm d'Or. Which I've seen. I've not seen... Force majeure, like yes, Russell, but the square I have. And I think you know, I'd be interested to go and see uh, other work from this filmmaker. And uh, this film is getting mixed reviews coming out of that accolade that it's won at Cannes. I can definitely see why. Um, I think the most interesting part of this film happens in the beginning, and in the second act, I'm slightly less interested. And in the third act, this film really lost me okay it's got a very clear uh part one part two part three structure i'm talking like black screen part one oh, part okay. two part yeah. three etc so it really does you know break it up for you and what we've essentially got is a satire on the ultra wealthy mm. uh, you've seen the trailer for it and you know yes. sort of roughly what yeah, it's about game, yeah. so the film actually opens with uh carl and yaya who are a couple of models slash influencers carl's played by harris dickinson and yaya's played by the tragically late charlby creek mm. um 
And what I think this film opens with, which is really interesting, is a dissection of this very toxic and insecure relationship. The film opens with Carl as a model going into this audition with 50 other models in the room, all of whom are topless, all of whom are striving to kind of become the exact same image, but are all uniquely different looking and flawed in very different ways. It shows the humiliating process of what it's like to walk into a model casting room topless while five people are just looking at your shots going, oh, this isn't very interesting. And you're just standing there doing a walk and you do a walk and they go, you're not doing your walk very well. I need you to walk with something else, something different. And, and then, you know, later the couple go for dinner and they have this conversation about who should pay and why you should pay. And I didn't know you were so obsessed with money. And it's really taking time to actually like let you sit with these two characters. And I was really kind of interested in the way it was presenting this very flawed, vapid um, uh, presentation of like what that class of people who do that sort of thing might strive to achieve in life. And I'm like, huh, this is actually really... Interesting. You then, and as you would have seen in the trailer, cut to a bunch of ultra wealthy people going on a mega yacht where you have like maybe uh, 20 ultra rich people all part of this of this yacht. Uh, that couple who the film now actually quite slightly departs from are there because they get there to go there for free because they're influencers. Mm. There's almost the sense that they're actually not wealthy enough to be a part of this group, mm. but they are sort of almost like there by proxy of their... Mm profession kind of pretending and aspiring to be a part of this social yeah. class you've got a russian oligarch on board who says i sell shit I'm like, excuse me he's like, oh i sell fertilizer for agriculture <laughs> but you know he's sort of almost like yeah. gloating about how he makes his billion selling uh selling you know fertilizer you've got someone there who's like a nerdy fat balding overweight um, guy who sells code to tech companies and sells this technology for like tens of millions of dollars at a, at a time. You've got an old, cute British couple who sell grenades and arms in war, but they seemingly have no self-awareness for how that might be like really damaging and really distracting <laughs> to society. So yeah, so when the EU regulated those hand grenades after commission, it was really hard times, wasn't it, darling? <laughs> yes, it was really hard times. Yes, but you know, we we worked through it in the end. And there's like loads of really great moments where I'm like, this is really funny. And I'll admit, there are actually a couple of moments, even towards the end where I got really tired of the film, where I did go like, wow, like this is really funny. Yeah. As it stands, I think the White Lotus is still the king of doing the satirization yeah. of the ultra wealthy and properly dissecting what it's like to have this divide between those who serve and those who are served. There's some fantastic sequences where uh, you can see them all boarding onto the private jet and there is this helicopter which is marching towards the yacht and there is this elite package in this hardened case that is being delivered. It gets dropped down. Someone at sea picks it up. The boat delivers it to the boat. The, the briefcase gets taken into the kitchen and the chef opens it up and it's three jars of Nutella. <laughs> and you're just realizing that like whatever is requested is never too much. And one of the head waiters said, listen, if they ask you to do anything, you say yes. If they ask you for hard drugs, you say yes. If they say jump, you say how high. And there's this uncomfortable scene where this woman who has no self-awareness of the fact that these people are, these people serving them are actually people. She says, oh my God, like, I feel so bad that I'm swimming. You should swim. I want you all to swim. Tell everyone I want them all to swim. And she's mm. like, no, no, we can't do that. So then she has to tell every single member of, of staff on the boat that they have to stop what they're doing. The chef of the kitchen is like, we're all cooking. No, no, you have to go for a swim because someone wants you to go for a swim. And... You know, you have this uh, captain played by Woody Harrelson, who is this drunken uh, American communist who has these arguments over the telecom with this uh, Russian oligarch capitalist, and they're throwing like different bits of um, philosophical, political yeah. prose at each other. 
And what happens in, so the second act is on the boat and the third act is the aftermath of what happens in the boat. And look, I think when I get to the end of this film, it's got a great punchline and a very last scene, which I actually really liked. But zooming out, I can go, look at the film and go, oh yeah, like mm. that is kind of funny. And there are some like scenes which really stick with me and there's some really good ideas, but it was a real slog mm. to actually get through those scenes, especially in the third act where I think the film just becomes a completely new idea yeah. or I was properly bored mm. and properly just thinking, uh, you need to you need to choose one of these, and you're you're trying to do too much in the film. And I'm in the third act, and I'm looking at some of the decisions that, or just some of the things that are happening. I'm like, what is what's happening now? And this is just so strange. It's a completely new idea. I want to give a shout out to the character of Abigail, played by Dolly De Leon. I don't even want to spoil what role she plays yet, but it's sort of, you know, a role reversal on the server and how that power yeah. dynamic changes. And I think she's absolutely star of the show, but only really sort of comes into her own in the third act. Um, and yeah, I just I just think like zoomed out from afar, really funny, really mm. cool idea. What a slog. Shame. Scene by scene to work through. Do you find it interesting that we are living in a in a trend where uh examinations of the of the hyper wealthy, the super wealthy are becoming like common form entertainment. Did you mention the white lotus? Absolutely. Yes. I agree. And we will be we're which gonna I'm try actually watching to... right now, which is why right, I make yeah, a so we're, we're making we're near the end of the White Lotus season two and we were hoping to we are hoping to do a spoiler catch up, you know, spoiler review of that if you haven't watching it as well uh, before the end of the year. You mentioning it, I know you haven't um you mentioning it to uh Glass Onion is yes. similarly yeah. tackles the super wealth uh, in obviously a completely Arrogance. different genre, yes. but it is still there. Both Knives Out as well, but also particularly Glass Onion. Um, Succession, similarly. Yeah. That, again, which because of Jesse Armstrong and, and his background as a writer with Peep Show and the thing. And there's this element of escapism that, of like looking in. Well, of course you get to, to enjoy yeah. the look, you get to enjoy the, by looking at really rich and opulent things. Yeah. You get that sort of, um, very dramatic comedic line of things are so exaggerated when they're wealthy. Yeah. There's this awkward tension. And, you know, I, I, it sounds like there's some stuff of there of merit uh, in Triangle of Sadness. The thing is about Ruben Ostland, is Force Majeure is the one I really, really want to see. And it's yeah. been on my watch list for ages. And if people don't know, it was uh, this film about a skiing holiday, this family go uh, on the skiing holiday. And uh, there's a very, very minor... Uh, well, there's, there's an avalanche that happens, right? And this is on the poster, and this is the premise of the film. And it's sort of coming down, and it starts very small, and then it becomes apparent this is going to be very big and, big, and actually has the prospect of wiping out the entire ski lodge. Yeah. And the father of the family just grabs his phone and leaves and runs. Right. But then there's ma the, the avalanche diverts, and it's actually something very minor. So he's made this massive gesture of basically abandoning his family, but the, the disaster didn't happen, so everyone's like... Why you did just you just left? Yeah. And it was remade into, I think, a really bad uh, Will Ferrell comedy called Down Downhill uh, okay. with Judy right. Louis Dreyfus in it as well. Right, okay. Which came out just before COVID, so that's why no one remembers Fine. it. Okay. Um, so he made that, and that's the one I really want to see because that's like examining uh, uh, the role of men and, and, and masculinity and insecurity sure. in a really funny way. Then he made The Square, which I have seen, which has Klaus Bang in it, who's great in like The Northman and stuff, but I found a real sock as well. Right. The longer it went on, the harder I found it to be. It's got that great scene I talked about before with Terry Notary in it um, as this sort of art piece, walking ape, and he disturbs yes. really rich, rich dinner. Great ideas and great moments, but oh, I think you're right. Ruben Austin like, just keeps... Um, seeing how much he can get away with in terms of how much he can test the audience and there's a jumping off point. So that's interesting because like coming out of this, I'm like, I actually really like this director's touch. I'd be interested to go and see like, mm. not quite this, but like what else have you done that I could jump into? But like hearing that that's maybe slightly par for the course is maybe slightly less encouraging. And like, again, 
really good ideas. Like there's this, and you, this is in the trailer, but there's this, there's this thing that happens where everyone on the cruise gets horrific food poisoning. And there's just this wonderful idea that like, that is a really great leveler, no matter how much, yeah. how many zeros you have in the bank. If you've got food poisoning, got food it's poisoning. coming yeah, out. Yeah. And it's just like such a great idea. And then like people are just being sick from both ends, like yeah. all over this boat. And someone runs up and people are sitting in this dining hall and just throws up and sick splats all over the window. <laughs> and even though like the, the staff just have to maintain that everything's okay. And you just see this wiper just <laughs> immediately like, Come on. And like, again, the couple um, played by Harris Dickinson. Uh, Harris Dickinson and Shelby Dean Creek are just really funny. And there's moments where like, they're playing it so straight. And mm. even in the third act, they have interactions where I'm like, this is, I'm really bored, but like that moment yeah. for what you guys have been through is really funny. Okay, so there you have it. So a mixed bag of ingredients, but really uh, maybe see it. If you've seen it, let us know your thoughts. Uh, but I always find the Palm Door winner is always Divisive. a funny one. I mean like Parasite one, which is obviously fantastic, but like usually, I find the Palm Door winner has like, it wins because it makes a very good point. Uh, mm. the, the film is usually about something and it's a really interesting look at that one issue, but yeah. it might be a very flawed look at that issue. And, and I will say, you know, we talked about, you know, it's a satirization of the ultra wealthy and, and that we're seeing that quite a lot. <laughs> Again, when you're doing that and there's so much, so many other ways that people are commenting mm. on that, I'm a little bit like, yes, you're doing that. And... Uh, yeah. I, I, I've Got seen this now. now. Yeah. It, it's like, what, what's, what's your take on it? I know it's very cathartic to see rich people struggling and to see them like, you know, reduced to nothing but what they have on them. There's mm. no, you're not very good in your Gucci loafers when you're stranded somewhere, right? Mm. And uh, that's very cathartic to watch. Mm. But like, what, what now have you got to say? Mm. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone set, lets me know and says, actually, James, you missed the point. It's actually about X, Y, yeah. and then also Z, and you, you've not really commented on that. And that may be true. Maybe yeah. I missed something. I cannot take away from the fact that I think it's a really long slog and it's a slightly distracted film. Cool. Well, let us know if you've seen Triangle of Sadness. Send us your thoughts to hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. We'll read them out on the show. Yeah. Okay, George, let's go through some of the emails that we got this week. Mm -hmm. Declan writes into hello at pulpkitchenpodcast.com, just like you can. He says hello to the Pulp Kitcheners. Hello, Declan. Name for the fans. Mm. I've been loving your thoughts on film ever since I started I, listening. Sorry, I, yes. think, I think I would like maybe Pulp Kitchenettes. Because it's like, yeah, like, like a, a kitchenette. kitchenette. That makes sense. Are you a pulp kitchenette? Yeah. yeah. Or just a kitchenette. Oh, I'm, I'm a kitchenette. I'm a, I'm a pulp kitchenette. Yeah. But kitchenette is almost like, like a French feminine of something. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, yeah, but it, but it not works. that I care, but no, it works. It does work. A, a, a Kitchener reminds me of like Lord Kitchener, you know, from World War One, who did the "We need you." <laughs> um, the kitchen, no, no, let's do Kitchener. I like that. I've been loving your thoughts on film ever since I started listening about a month ago. And as an Welcome. early career writer-director myself, I'm fascinated by stories and how they are told. First off, earlier in the same episode, talking about She Said, it was mentioned how a viewing experience can change your thoughts on the film you see. Mine was interesting. I'm a regular at my cinema, but I'd never been to a screening where they forgot to put the film on. What? I went in by myself and coincidentally, so had an actor from my uni. So we were chatting and discussing projects, as you do, cinema music in the background. Fast forward half an hour and I had to go out and ask them to put the film on after no ads, trailers, or nothing. And he spells nothing with <laughs> N-U-F-M. Yeah. Uh, but honestly, it was nice to chat to my friend and we did get a free hot dog vouchers afterwards. Great. I've never experienced that where the cinema like actually doesn't function as the cinema. That's ridiculous. What followed was she said. And it, but I, like, I wonder how long I would sit before I would go and do something. You got to... 
Yeah, I mean, I guess half it was an hour's black, work. you would go, what's going on? Yeah. Also, um, it's, who you, it's who you're stuck with, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You just <laughs> you know. again, James. Oh, you know what? I better just check on that film. <laughs> you just know there's like a spotty teenager in the projection room. Like, like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Play spaceball. Uh, what followed was, she said, an incredible film. That blew us away, even if it did ease us in with the punny studio Plan B Productions before a film with this title. The performances kept us hooked throughout, and I wasn't sure about the runtime before, but we were glued to the screen swiftly and really felt the anxiety and pain of the protagonists we followed. I love the details of watching how life around them was still trudging on despite their huge story that they were unraveling from history. I thought that it already happened... I forgot that it had already happened. There was a risk to this predetermined story all of a sudden as I was really into this film. For me, the fact that I didn't see it alone and in the end and connect... For me, the fact that I didn't see alone in the end and connected with someone beforehand gave me a sense of I see myself in you as the protagonist looked to connect to the women that can allow for real change and real mm -hmm. truth to emerge. Like any struggle, it's a journey we should help each other through. It felt truly powerful. I agree. Yeah, I feel exactly the same thing about um, what I mentioned in my review. Like it really does grip you and you're there mm -hmm. for the whole time. And I think it's just fantastic at holding your attention. Great. Uh, question for you both. What's the last film you saw that gave you a sense of power in its filmmaking and story? Something that made you question a few things about the world perhaps. Usually, I prefer fantasy or strange characters, but sometimes real life can take us on quite a trip, and that was this. Thanks for reading and putting out absolutely quality podcasts. Much appreciation, Declan. George, a film that has given you a sense of power in its filmmaking or story, or something that's made you question something? A few things about the world. That's a tough question. Quite yeah. A broad question. Do you mean a film that has shown me a subject matter that I've gone... That's very interesting. That's really changed me. Or is it the way a film has been made that has made me think that's changed my what's my life? my first instinct would be a really good Black Mirror concept where I've gone ah like I know not a film but I've gone oh hey, like don't worry darling no yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know but the one I I always talk about is uh, Dark Waters which was this yes. film which was made by Todd Haynes with Mark Ruffalo in it and it came out just before COVID and because it was about a very very scandalous. Uh, uh, health about a scandalous uh, corruption thing that, that massively affects all human health on the planet because it happened just before covid as soon as covid hit people didn't have the, the headspace to mm. sort of talk about it and it's about um water water contamination similarly dope sick like similarly how, dope how, like, sick yeah but a series money, that yeah. well yeah exactly so you know there's a whole sub genre there of whistleblowing uh uncovering Spotlight. massive scandals so um deep dark waters though is just one of those things that i think is it, you know when you see a film you think oh that, that was really good and that was really solid but mm. it was so solid in, in a way that I was like it's almost uh, high art in the way that it was so um, solidly put together yeah like uh, I, I, people say on, they've been talking about it and they're like you know it's it's so everything is deliberate and well paced. You know, Todd Haynes is this very sort of uh, usually quite artistic and very creative, and very colourful director, and he made this very restrained film. And it's like, yeah, it's deliberately restrained because it's trying to tell this very hard story. Similarly, dope sick. You come away and you think, uh, which is this uh, Hulu series, but it's on Disney Plus in the UK, uh, which just makes you sort of real. And it's it's so like you know dry and obvious like how that happens. It's mm. like you, you, you it's about can, the oxycontin epidemic. and you can believe yeah. it, but it doesn't make what you're seeing any more mm. tragic and heartbreaking and just yeah. really sad um strong recommend thanks for writing oh, did in, you have Declan. an answer sorry uh yeah uh, that's fine i'll okay. just go with those 
Next one is from Sadie, who writes into the show and says, Hi guys, second time writing in, and I'm almost caught up on all the episodes. Thank Pop you, Kitchen Sadie. was my second most listened to podcast this year, <laughs> though I'm certain if I had discovered you a little bit earlier, it would be the first. Oh, well, I'll you. do better next year. <laughs> thanks, Sadie. Thank you. I was wondering what some of your favorite movie scores and soundtracks are. Nice. I always think it is interesting and fun to look at the music composed specifically for films, as well as the songs they choose to incorporate. Some of my favorite scores soundtracks are The Incredibles and About Time. More recently, I also love the music in The Batman. I think mm. there's something in the way by Nirvana was such a perfect yeah, choice like that, for that you? film. Curious to hear some of your favorites and your yeah. thoughts. Hope you're both doing well, and thank you for all the great content, Sadie. Yeah. Well, look, we, we've had a, we have had a similar questions to this before, yes. but uh, it's a great question, mm. um, and so we will do it again. I actually have a note on my phone. I'll try and answer differently. Um, that gives these Jurassic Park. Okay, well, no. First of all, I want to make the distinction between soundtrack and score. Oh, yes. Very different things. Very she's, different things. So if we're going to talk... She says favourite movie scores and soundtracks. So, so if we're going to do soundtracks, which obviously is using other artists' music, um, you know, usually your pop culture references, that kind of thing, to put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I would... So many you can choose from, but the two that I feel like I've had most sort of rotation... Um, first is obviously Guardians of the Galaxy. Because yeah. I mentioned that because that not only does that it's just a great collection of songs but that's one of the times the soundtrack is actually is actually an emotional device within the film itself yeah it's not just it's not just music playing around it's not not even that it's just in the world it's like if the mixtape and it establishes the mixtape is into the walk exactly presses it play. is a emotional yeah. it's emotionally connected to the story of that film the other one is a strange one. It is Drive. And I say yeah. it's strange because that only has five soundtrack songs in it before it becomes oh, wow. the score. score by Cliff Martinez, I think, right? Um, and But when I saw Drive when I was 17, I was the right age to see it. And I remember for the, for the rest of the time when I saw it, you know, when I was still at school, I was just listening to those five tracks. And they're five very random tracks. You've got that great Kavinsky song. You've got the Desire Something song. Inside. And then you've got the, yeah... Um, Real human, uh, real hero by College, mm. I think, and then or was it Electric Youth? I don't know. Um, and then you've got that Riz Ortolani song, which is like "Oh My Love." Do you yeah. remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And then it ends with uh, "Tick of the Clock" by the Chromatics. Just yeah. great, great five tracks there. And then, and then I never really listened to the the, the soundtrack because it's it's sorry the score rather mm. because it's very sort of minimal. But those two in particular. Um, obviously, any Tarantino soundtrack is, oh, God, is, yeah. is brilliant. It but immediately just becomes engulfed by the that film. But, sorry, and then scores, we have mentioned a lot of these before, but I will say uh, Interstellar, obviously, oh Hans Zimmer, uh, Social Network, Trent Reznor, yeah. Atticus Ross, obviously. Um, I will give a shout out to Blonde because the soundtrack in that was wild. Oh, yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Phantom Thread by Johnny Greenwood, anything by Johnny Greenwood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jackie uh, and Nocturnal Animals, which we've spoken about before. Yeah, uh, that would be mine, James. Anything? Trying to think of something I haven't said. I'll give uh, James Newton Howard from The Village. The film film is flawed. Mm. That score is incredible. Uh, a lot of Thomas Newman stuff I like, mm. and then uh, just the soundtrack one that's coming to mind. I want to give a shout out to the the song that plays you out of Good Time, the Iggy Pop. Oh, well, the, uh, and yeah. the down, like what well, when a song really just takes you home out of a film mm. and gives you that almost like slow, but like somber uh, finish. Mm. It's a really good finishing of the, yeah, I've mentioned well, Revolutionary Road, also, also Thomas Newman. I'm trying to think of this low. Oh, Man of Steel, Hans Zimmer. Oh mm. my God, that's that. that. Uh, firstly, trying to tackle the original Superman score and make something distinct, mm. different, and also as good as um, 
what what was done before i think mm. is really hard job and i think that score became immediately iconic and it's when mm. that score comes in any of the other worst movies i'm always like that's my favorite part of justice league when they played <laughs> that song from man of steel um also just whilst we're talking about like soundtracks and scores i was thinking about HBO shows obviously very good. Yeah. They all have great, great sounds. Uh, great, great theme tunes. I mean, great composing and music throughout. White but Lotus. Like, but it's typified by the theme tunes. White Lotus, fantastic mm. opening track. Succession, great opening track. Game yeah. of Thrones. Like those yeah. three iconic. Iconic, highly distinctive yeah. uh theme tunes that people then, you know, enter pop culture being used in videos, TikToks, whatever. Yeah. And obviously the 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 subsequent music that's used throughout the show on those ones are, are brilliant. But I just I just realized it's like, my God, and then you, you know, the Sopranos, uh, Kobe Enthusiasm, yeah. all these shows have just fantastic musical identities. Anyway. So many. And I love it when a film introduces you to an artist you've never heard before and you're just like, oh, like 500 God. Days of Summer. Yeah, like 500 <laughs> Days of Summer. Oh, do you know what I like? I liked when Euphoria did um, uh, Sinead O'Connor and they brought her oh, in yeah. for that. Um, not nothing compares to you. It was Drink, Drink Before, before the, war. the War. And that was yeah. such a oh, beautiful God. like comparison between it. And he's just like, thanks to stalk and then that's you just a, get that chord. Uh, yeah, that's a raw song, isn't it? That's Amazing a you've got a, song. I remember just yourself. like watching that and be like, oh my God, this film's really going Euphoria for it. Euphoria actually has a, all loads oh, of needle, needle oh, drops. It's fantastic. Like the hip hop and like the, yeah. the, the synth. They also, the first episode, sorry, we'll go on to the next yeah, question, yeah. but the first episode they move, they play it muffled in the background. You know the song Hold Up by Beyonce, right? Yeah, yeah. They play the Andy yes. Williams original track from the 60s, the dum, dum. Dum, dum, yeah. can get used to it. And then they cut it when the title hits with the hold up. Yeah. I can think if you just let us go without any structure, <laughs> we would just do this for like 40 minutes. <laughs> so I hope that answers your basically, question. Basically, there are loads. Yeah. Um, this next one is from Lucy. Lucy writes into the show. She writes into hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. She says, hey boys, just listening oh, to your latest boys. episode, episode 53, about the BFI greatest films of all time list. If you didn't know, we went through yes. what the BFI and Sight and Sound defined as the new every, what was it, by, te, by no, no, decennial, decennial uh, list. And George sort of very nicely broke, uh, broke them down and sort of put them in that list. You can go and listen to that if you want to see if uh, what those were. Uh, she says, I had a look through and hopefully, like most people, I was surprised that I hadn't seen or even heard of most of them. I decided I might try very slowly working my way through the list. But as I was browsing the titles and descriptions, I started to wonder how important you think context is when watching a film. For example, context at the time the film was released, context on reception, context on the director or the film style. Do you think having this sort of knowledge beforehand improves the watching experience or does it ruin it? Or does it simply depend on the film? Sometimes I watch a film and I think, I didn't really get what that was all about. But after I've read up on it, I feel like I wasn't fully engaged because I was maybe missing some context that would have helped me to appreciate it more. Hope this makes sense. Would love to hear your thoughts. As always, love the podcast. Thanks, Lucy. Great question because Amazing I, question. when you when you were reading that out, I was finding myself uh, hard agreeing with both. Yeah, because when you're talking about historical films like the BFI list, you know the Sight and Sound list yeah. presents, context is absolutely key mm -hmm. to understanding w why it's important, just and and the world it was created in, and and, and informing just uh, just knowing that just because that what just because that is a film then and we have films now, does not mean they were made in the same landscape no. at all, right? However, I am also someone who, not only do I try and limit the amount of trailers, I watch the information I know about a film before I go in to see it, even if I watch an old film, I sometimes think, look, as long as I just know the gist of it, who's in it, 
and the sort of like consensus about it, you know, yeah, if there's if there's a just why people think it's good. Uh, I want that film just to just sorry, not the consensus about it. That's the context. I mean, without that, I just want to put that film on and see if that film still works for me as a 2022 20, member of the audience. Okay. Yeah. Because often they won't. And that's not saying that, that film is bad. It's like, can I watch this film as as out of context as I would with a modern film? And would it still work? Because if it if it does work, that's the sign for me that that's a good film. If I can put like last a couple of Christmas ago, I put on on, on the waterfront, right? Marlon right. Brando yeah, film. Yeah. Right? That's 1952. You know, it's a bloody long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I put it on, and it still worked. And I was like, great. I didn't know. All I knew was Marlon Brando was in it, and then I knew the little speech in it. But that is is key. Now, I think almost context comes into it if you don't engage the film. So if I'd seen on the waterfront, I thought, oh, that didn't really click with me. I would then think, okay, well, I need to look up why people think of why people hold this so dearly and then you can read up a bit and then if you think oh you either think oh that's changed my mind i might have missed something or you think no no i i yeah i've read that but i still think my opinion is valid so in a way i'm saying context can matter and is sometimes incredibly crucial but it's still okay to just go into watching a film um directly and plainly uh I think. Do you, or, do, or do you think that's unfair? Do you think it's unfair to go and watch? You know, if you if, if I just they say, oh, Gene Dealman is 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 number one, so I'm just going to whack on Gene Dealman. Oh, that film's rubbish. Well, it's only rubbish because you didn't realize it was a three and a half hour Belgian film about uh, the, the mundane details of her life. If you'd known that going in, maybe you would have had a different reaction. I don't know. You know, hearing that question made me think about a practice that you and I have tried to be a lot better at when doing this podcast. Is that whenever you and I want to go into a deep discussion about an old film, mm. it's very. Uh, disorienting and slightly jarring to all of a sudden go a deep dive into an old film without the proper context mm. of why we're talking about it what like why we did it's with really, avatar exactly like we've done with avatar so me and george will go okay we're going to watch this one of us should do just a little bit of an in for people mm. so they know it was 2009 mm. this was the cultural landscape this is what came out around it this is why this film was big which really helps inform someone about the opinion that they're about mm. to hear and i feel like it can be slightly reductive to just be like avatar is this out of nowhere because you're like wait wait mm. what we also had a discussion, I want to say it could have been over a year ago now, where we talked about the practice of going through a bunch of films and almost like binging them back to back. And in so many ways, that's a really useful practice because you get to see lots of things in quick succession. But we use this analogy of like going through the greatest hundred paintings all time in a slideshow yeah. and just flashing them to you. And yes, you've technically seen the best mm. paintings in the world, but did you actually understand who made it? What was mm. the artist going through when they made it? What literal mm. thing are they depicting? Mm. And I think that's really important. So in so many ways, I'm the same as George. I agree and disagree. Mm. Like by all means, like try and really understand what you're trying to watch. Try and get to know who, what other films that director's done. What was the actor doing when mm. they did that? What are some of like the great stories from that production that really informed mm. why that film is special? Because that's often things you never really realize. Like the yeah. reason why that shot is so amazing is because they only had this, they had this limitation on it. And that's yeah. why it's something that makes it so great and actually yeah i I think you're right the the more we talk about it the more i'm leaning towards that context is absolute key Mm. uh and that because it's 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 equally knowing that um that shot that they did or that dialogue that they used or that thing they did was actually a reference or a ripoff yes of a film 20 years ago or um that this version of this film has been done much better previously before so uh, context is key, but also context can be incredibly fruitful and a nice way to really engage them. Because mm. when you look at the top five, sometimes these lists, as much as celebrating films, can flatten them into just being numbers, right? Yeah. So when you look at all those five films uh, that were the top five, which I believe were Gene Dealman, Vertigo, Citizen Kane, Tokyo Story, and In the Mood for Love, 
those are actually five completely different yeah. films made by completely different people in different, well, I was gonna say different time periods, but three of those, I think from the fifties. Um, so context is abs- context is a fruitful way of actually celebrating all those differences. So instead of picking up to- Tokyo Story, because I was about to say Toy Story, <laughs> picking up Tokyo great Story, film. great film, um, because, oh, it's number four on the science sound list. No, it should be like, oh, I want to watch Tokyo Story because it's this product of a time in Japanese cinema where, where things are really interesting and it really caught the attention of the West because of this. And then go watch it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. It's like the same as like that hundred thousand one films to see before you die what you're gonna like reduce citizen kane to four sentences mm. in a coffee table book and yeah. expect someone to like it um it's a good question good question watch as many talking, films as you can just keep watching people and yeah richard writes into the show and so i'd uh, say uh, lucy but lucy thank you very much for that question very interesting conversation this next one is from richard he says hello james and george first Hi. time writer into the pod but long time listener i found you both on tiktok and i've been de- i have devout you have devoured. Ah, devoured. <laughs> Your entire back catalogue in no time. I eagerly await each episode and loved what you've done with the pod. You're you. Bo- you both are easily my favourite film podcast. Oh, uh, I even found... The praise, it keeps coming. It comes oh my goodness. I found, even though I do disagree with you some of the time, that's I find bad. you are both respectful of other people's opinions, but yet put your opinions across in a way that's like poetry. Po- oh, it's great on, to no. hear you talk film and I eagerly await each episode. Richard, you are too kind. You're very Thank kind. You. I feel a bit... A bit indulgent that we've even read that out lately, to be honest. (laughs) Having heard your thoughts on Amsterdam, it delayed my watch till it came on Disney+. Plus. Now that I've seen the film, I have to say it's made my top 15 of the year. The film for me fits into that tiny subgenre of wandering detective stories. I guess you could call it very much in the vein of The Big Lebowski, an inherent vice, where the story is often sometimes incoherent or inconsequential, Mm. but very much the characters that take you on the ride. I've seen a lot of divisive comments about these films, and I have to say it's a subgenre that I love. What would be a subgenre or genre of film that you connect to but you find many others don't okay first of all to answer about amsterdam um great to hear your thoughts about it yeah. i mean i think james and i had that thing that we you know we, you know, we had a good experience seeing it and we i think the more the time has taken since we've seen it we can both agree that it was well acted well look uh, well acted good looking nonsense yes um i think that that point about the wandering detective story is, is perfectly valid mm. it makes perfect sense i mean i really really struggled with inherent vice even though much i love paul thomas anderson mm. um I, the Big Lebowski, though, I kind of hold differently because The Big Lebowski is coherent enough and it's funny. It's yeah, really, it's really funny. Good. That's what holds that film together. Um, Any subgenres sub-genres that you're a fan Okay, of? well, I love uh, time travel films that take time travel into a different sort of like, you know, realm, like Looper or yeah. About Time even, or oh, yeah, like uh, Predestination. You just close your eyes. Yeah, I, I, I just bloody love it. time travel. And then when they when they hammer it in and put it into a different like context, I'm just like, oh, how lovely. Um, mm. I think I'm also uh, uh, a sucker for slightly doomed, uh, tragic, tr- tragic, I mean, tragic uh, uh, r- couples. Um, see. Right before trilogy see 45 years see brief encounter yeah um films like that i think are really up my street they don't all work i mean like lost in translation like i i like it's not up in my top yeah, ones, yeah. but like those if i see a film that's on that kind of like uh, columbus another one uh yeah. just uh i'm like oh another way of a, di- a, a different way of musing on male female relations or even just like uh, two the relationships between two people um that's my that's your subgenre. That's, that's my kink. <laughs> that's my I'd niche. I'd say when I get excited, which isn't this will be a lot of people's, but anytime they go to court, 
It's oh, like really? it's the you intellectual never... let's go to war. I just rub my hands together like few good men. Yeah. People versus OJ. Yeah. Like even liar liar. Yeah. I would say like that. It just builds towards it. Trial of Chicago Seven. Yeah. Like it just uh, it just is this amazing. And if it's, I don't know how, but films always manage to make what is easily the most boring part of the yeah. legal system <laughs> the most exciting. It's nothing like that in real life. Like, yeah. like denial. Yes, the Lincoln yes, lawyer. Oh my, yes. my goodness, that's a very underrated film. Move on. Any uh, TV move, show, people, people versus on, OJ, yeah. especially. I think oh, it was just. It was it. like the second half of that it. show is just the trial. But I just I rub my hands together. I go, yeah, let's go for it. We, Intellectual war. My girlfriend's studying to be the barrister, yeah. and uh, so I showed her Liar Liar. Oh yeah, which is great. But I also, have you watched my cousin Vinny? Mm, mm. No, yeah, see, that's a that's a law oh, drama. Know, yeah. and that's really funny. That's really good yes. still. Yeah, really, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed so that. So that's my one when that happens. I'm like, yeah. But look, it's a subgenre. It's kind of big. No, I like that. I Kill like a Mockingbird. Of course. Yeah. This last one is 12 from, Angry Men. Yeah, 12 I mean, Angry Men. Not, cool not but still, you know, culminating in a battle of minds. Yes, it's like changing decisions, revelations. The Crucible. Yes. I mean, yeah. again, not, again, not a courtroom, but similar. You thing. can handle the truth. <laughs> a few good men. Yes. Uh, this last one. Let me just read this one. This last one is from Luke, who says, Hi, James and George. Hope you're both doing well. Big fan of the podcast. Went to go see Armageddon Time on your recommendation. Yes. Thought it was absolutely fantastic. Completely took me by surprise. Yeah, go check out the Armageddon Time review. Yeah, can I actually just make a point on yes. that? Because um, I went and saw Armageddon you Time saw it as well. on, on your recommendation. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was really, really impressed with, with Armageddon Time. And I want to flag it again because it's that film didn't get a lot of attention. I think people should really see it. The first third, I was kind of like, okay, I don't know whether, I'm, I'm not sure I'm with mm. this that much, but the, the longer it went on, particularly in the second act, uh, second half, what I really found was like, this film is so emotionally complex. Yeah. It was like a novel. I was just like, yes. this, I'm feeling so conflicted and so many different emotions about yeah. the characters here and all the things they're working with and the the ideas that that film is working with towards the end i think are really interesting heartbreaking yeah like quite personal. bleak in a way very personal and i was like you know what like it, it might not work for a lot of people this film but i just think that that is that really stood out as a unique perspective yes. and a unique voice what an interesting take and i on... hope it doesn't go past people too much because I, th I think mm. like you could boil down the dialogue to something that's said is very simple but i think like the mm. subtext behind mm. it is so yeah. uh, dark and interesting and complex yeah. and exciting and it's like i had so many different thoughts that i had from my own yeah you know predisposed idea of what they might be talking yeah. about and it's it's very it, hard to it, sort of boil down i think i think so in like i think that film really uplifted for me no, it's not uplifting necessarily no. at all but um but like that film began like, okay, and it really came together. And I love it when a film comes together to the end, to the point where you then look at the whole yeah. completely differently. Great Anthony Hopkins, great Jeremy Strong, great Aaron Hathaway. Sorry, I just, good opportunity for Go you to Go and check it out on again time yeah. if you haven't. Um, I wanted to ask your opinions on HFR, brackets, high frame rate screenings. Right. With the release of Avatar 2, I can see James Cameron once again pushing the boundaries of cinema screening technology. I, like most film nerds, are fairly lukewarm about Avatar. However, I definitely want to go see it purely to see whether or not it can live up to the success of the first one. I'll be, it'll be one of the few excuses to go all out on seeing it in the best way possible, right. e.g. Dolby, IMAX, etc. Otherwise, what's the point? Kind of yeah, I fair. Get you, yeah. Now look, I'm happy to see the back of 3D technology being thrusted into every film in the early 2010s, but with Avatar, I'll make an exception 
I'll make an exception for because it basically revitalized the format. Yeah. Whilst I'm in the mood for giving niche screen technologies a chance, <laughs> I'm also seeing options to watch it in HFR. I've not yet ventured into the world of high frame rate screenings. Can you elaborate on what, if any, improvement it has on the viewing experience? Is it a distracting gimmick like 3D for most movies? Should I bother seeking out an HFR screening? Do you have a particular opinion or personal experience on whether or not HFR is any good? I draw how you've both romanticized the cinema going experience in previous episodes and figured you'd be able to point me in the right direction. I look forward to podcast every week. Just wish you guys would do more content, but I know you're busy with those jobs of yours. Oh, Thanks, thank Luke. you. I mean, we'd love to. We absolutely would love to, but we, <coughs> we're only so many we hours a, a day. And we do a lot, and <laughs> yeah. there are other things. Got to um, see all the films, the four-hour <laughs> Avatar films. But, um, I do have some stuff on high frame rate, but this is really your area of expertise. Sure. I think you can speak to this a lot more than I can. Uh, so high frame rate, so... Basically, uh, what we, so as a cine, as, <laughs> I've got a lot of things going on. As a uh, cinematographic video making community around the world, as a lot of you all know, we all kind of agreed for both creative reasons and practical reasons that we should film 24 frames per second. Well, as um, Toby Jones says in the trailer for yes. Empire of Light, which I've seen upcoming. Yes. He says, there's a flaw in your retina, in your retinal feedback in your eye that means that at 24 frames per second, you don't see the gaps between the individual images exactly. and it produces the illusion of movement. Exactly. And it's actually 23.967 frames per second, which we round up correctly to 24. Um, so this is done for both aesthetic reasons, because we would say that you literally practically need to introduce so many frames per second to introduce the motion of movement, right? It also has, uh, we think that in terms of motion blur and how much movement looks natural without becoming too fluid we've all just agreed 24 is the standard it also has a very practical application if all of us around the world are shooting the same frame rate when i want to put a bit of my video and a bit of your video yeah. it syncs up the audio is not a mess it just works if you want to put something on tv we all shot the same frame rate right and also doesn't it have a historical background in, in actual film so film stock. also uh, from a practical cost perspective you don't want to shoot more frames per second than you need to because it costs you money right. to have film reels so yeah. the more frames per second you're shooting you need to buy more film and yes all, all of those reasons that would have related to actual celluloid um when you shoot in a higher frame rate, typically it means that you're shooting in slow motion. When you shoot more frames per second, you're capturing more frames. And when you play that back at the same speed, you've got slow motion because you've captured more in the same amount of time. So if you shoot in 48 frames per second, you're shooting at half speed. A lot of football is also shot at like 100 frames a second as well. So at any moment they can go up ah, that goal. I want to see that in a quarter of the speed to see yeah. it going, right? All films, typically, and look, these, I want to say these rules and laws, inverted commas, of filmmaking are, of course, there. But like all of the great filmmakers have traditionally used those rules and then broken them to do something, which is typically very good. Okay, so a high frame rate film, mm. the ones that I have seen are shot in 48 frames per second instead of 24. So, so you double the frame. And what illusion that has is it creates a more, what some would say, lifelike, fluid, almost like dreamlike effect on the film. Phil, I saw The Hobbit, the first two Hobbits in high frame rate. And I think it kind of works, but mostly my instinct is it kind of looks a little bit gross. Mm. Kind of looks like watching the news because the yeah. news is at 30 as far as I'm aware. And it just looks a bit it, real and a bit sitcom-y. It makes everything look like a set, doesn't it? Yes. It makes, it, it, it's behind the scenes. It the dimension so much that you think you're, yeah, you say behind the scenes footage. Yeah, yeah like, I don't, I almost want to be like, let's just stick to 24 because I think it. you see it and you go, oh, this is weird. Mm. 
I, I'm this is all off. The motion is weird. Mm. I feel like I start to see things like makeup and wigs yes. really clearly. Don't give your brain more information than it needs to, yes. to process something that's already an illusion. Don't. The more, otherwise your brain's being told, well, this is more than just illusion, that you're seeing hyper-reality. I think when it comes to things like immersive experiences, mm. VR, more frames the better. Like mm. make it as fluid as what would be real life. For a film like Avatar 2, maybe that's what you want. My like official James Brief or Pop Kitchen recommendation is I wouldn't seek it out unless you're really curious. I would always prioritize like color depth. Mm. Yes. over resolution and frame rate because your eyes are far more sensitive to color mm. than they are to like sharpness and yeah. motion. So like that will be like a Dolby or an yeah. IMAX where like color reproduction is the best. So that that's kind of explaining what it is mm. and whether or not you're interested. I, yeah, I think that there's some sort of inherent cinema magic that was born in the yes. versus cinema with the fact that they did 24 frames per second. Yes. And I think you don't need to play with that. And you're I'm just not saying you can't to... innovate. Great to have a, give it a try, but I think it's it's. I really don't want them to push it. It's like a... without knowing, you are already so used to watching things at 24 frames per yes. second. You just know that that's what content video is. So yeah. as soon as it, it you take that away, you're going to go, oh, yeah. that's that's odd. That looks strange. And you're probably going to be distracted from the film. I, I'm not going to say like it's bad. Don't do it. Filmmakers shouldn't. Because who am I to say that they shouldn't break the rules? But I would go. Yeah, yeah, I imagine James Cameron shot it in 48 frames in 3D. I can't even imagine what that camera looks like. It must just look like a fridge. It just must be the biggest thing in the world. James but, Cameron um, is so like advanced with his idea yeah. of technology. I bet he'll be like, no, we, we went to Pandora and we filmed this. <laughs> yeah. It's an actual planet. We just built the ship and we went. Like, <laughs> that's how far ahead he is. Like, and I, you know what? I kind of agree with you. Like, of all the films to try and find out, yeah. let's get all the bells and whistles. This is probably it. Custom made. For like, specific, custom specific, made. Like we talked before about how Avatar was Literally. made And I did, believe yeah. that of all the films to do it, this is probably the one that would do it right. So give it a punt. Give it a go. See how you feel that. Get, watch something in 48 frames per second and see if it makes you feel a bit sick. I heard it makes people feel a bit <laughs> sick just because you're not used to it. Um, but there Quite you go. Hopefully that's, hopefully that's helpful, yeah. Um, I, again, it's a rule, it's a law, but who's to say who can't break it? Okay. Thank you very much, Luke. Very interesting questions, everyone, today. Thank Great you so questions. Much. Keep them coming in. If you wanted to send a question into the show, you can do by emailing hello at polkitchenpodcast.com and we'll read them out on the show. Thank you, as always, for writing in. So, George, one of my favourite games is easily one of our stupidest games and it's why I like it so much and it is Film Opposites. Sure. This game, if you've seen it or if you've heard it before, I will read the opposite title of a film and George has to tell me what that film is based on its antonyms. So, for example, Square of Happiness would be Triangle, Triangle of Sadness, Sadness, which I just reviewed. There you go. So, so George, I've got two rounds for you. You have to guess the film based on its opposite film title. I would just to say, like, obviously, square isn't the opposite of triangle. But I know, you get but, but the point. You get the gist, yeah. Because, I see the comments. Yeah, we know, we know, guys, we know. But don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, okay? Thank don't you. It's all about having fun. George, you have to guess the film based on its opposite film title. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. Peace Pony. War Horse. Departure. Arrival. Hot Valley. Cold Mountain. What a throwback. The First Ninja. The Last Samurai. Samurai Ninja? Opposite? Okay. Good Girls. Bad Boys. Jenny French. Jenny French. Johnny English. <laughs> Mortgage. <laughs> uh, rent. <laughs> He's the woman. She's the man. Your Unjust Gentleman. My best. Unjust. Oh, say that again. Your Unjust Gentleman. 
My something woman. My fair lady. Uh. The tiger, the wizard, and the chest of drawers. <laughs> <laughs> the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Embodied here. Disembodied now. Spirited away. Um, it's kind of niche. Yeah. Normal inactivity. Paranormal activity. <laughs> pret manger the amateur. <laughs> what? The pret manger the... Uh, Leon, the professional. Oh! <laughs> So stupid. <laughs> My fast food chains out. Oh. That's a London, London-centric <laughs> cafe lunchtime. Do you know what? Like, these are as fun to make as they are to do. Like, I'm literally like laughing in the corner just Leon making the these ridiculous. I love it. Pret a manger, the you reach. You stretch just for that. You go, go for, it. for it. Oh, okay. Right, round. Do you like, I thought mortgage rent was good. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're not paying your mortgage, you're paying rent. Ready? Last round. You have to guess the film based on its opposite film title. Ready? Three, two, one. Adult Passenger. Baby Driver. Ignore you by my number. <laughs> Call you by my name. Call, Call me by, me your, by name. your name. It's an awful death. It's a wonderful life. The blue kilometer. The red, no, the green mile. Yeah. Russian future Y. Russian future Y. American past... What? American History X. <gasps> to save a pigeon. To catch, uh, to save a pigeon, to catch a thief. No, to, to, to save a rat, something about a rat. To kill a mockingbird. <sighs> Outside in. Inside out. Smooth. Rough. Uh, uh, rough? Ro road, uh, rough. Rocky. Uh, Jesus. The science of dialogue. The science of dialogue. The, the myth of the talking. The, 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 the science of dialogue. Sorry, the silence of dialogue. Oh, the silence of dialogue. The noise, the sound of music. Yes. Lawful sailors of the Mediterranean. Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> and there we have oh, another Christ. round of the stupidest game that we do. Yes, stupid and in a way the smartest. So, yeah, like, I think some of them are. There's a good nothing wrong tickle. with dumb. That is a that is a good solid. Thank you, fun. Sporkle, for the, for the reference. A dumb game that makes me feel dumb as well because I can't believe I didn't get some of them. But those. like three hours later, you'll be on the tube and you'll just be like, <laughs> <laughs> "What a funny one." Guys, thank you so much for listening yes. to another episode of Pop Kitchen. We really do appreciate your time. I'm sorry this one is a bit late. Just plan to. Yes. Due to sorry, we scheduling were a bit late. It was a uh, yeah. It was, you know, it's the time, and there's, there's just the, is the time. No. Train strikes. All of that. The World Cup. Just the world falling apart. The world in general. No, no, let's leave it on a good note, James. On a Positive. good note. Um, keep going to the cinema. Keep enjoying films. Let us know if there's things you've seen that you really enjoy. Going to do Avatar too soon. We've got some fun end of the year stuff for yes. you. Not going to say what it is yet, but should hopefully be some nice looking ahead, looking back. Bit of this, bit of that. Yeah. Stay tuned for everything Pulp Kitchen towards the end of the year. We will not leave you over the holiday break. Absolutely not. And as ever, guys, you know, to follow us on TikTok, follow us on Instagram, give us a like and give us a subscribe. If you're, if you're already doing that, but you're like, wait a minute, I have YouTube. I haven't really, mm. I don't really follow these guys on YouTube. Or I don't even have a YouTube account. You can just yeah. quickly do one. If you have Gmail, you probably Make have a G one. YouTube account. Grandma! <laughs> Make one. Give us a like, give us a subscribe, mm -hmm. check us out, and um, we'd really appreciate it. If you want to see like videos of us going to fun premieres, doing cool things, yeah. anything like that, follow on our socials. Yeah. Just comment, chat to you back. Love It'll it. be great. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. See you next week.